Okay, continuing on, like we say, the emperor persecuted them. So whether it was 10 years that went on or the number was symbolic, all Christians will be persecuted, but not necessarily outward. In Europe and America, we can live any kind of religious life in general we want. So our persecution comes from individuals that think we're fanatics and don't want to have anything to do with us. So it may cost us friendships. It may cost us in the work world. We may miss over promotions and things because these people find a way in the world to get us back. And so the Lord wants us at times to suffer. So we have to suffer persecution. We have to suffer from the world and the flesh and the devil. All of this is called tribulation. So we don't have to go out and look for someone to beat us up to prove that we're a Christian. If you're a true Christian, you'll have enough in life that will test you. And you will realize you're in the enemy's territory and you're an ambassador. And sometimes you pay the price for this, okay? The filling of the Spirit, or baptism of the Spirit, was for boldness to proclaim the gospel. That's why many people cannot proclaim the gospel, and they should not. If you're afraid of man and you don't like obeying the Lord, you have to have boldness. Why do you have boldness? That was the main thing. Because you're going to be persecuted. See, if you give the true gospel, the majority of the people are going to reject it. Whether it was Jesus or the apostles or the early church, they always got a few converts when they went to places. But the majority of the people turned on them. They didn't like it. And so you have to have boldness to be able to do this. So I've heard many people, I heard recently someone told me of a pastor in Japan. He made me question He's whether he's a true Christian. His goal in life, his whole goal in life, he wants to have a large thousands of people to preach to. He doesn't even preach the true gospel now. He's a compromiser. He wants it for his own ego. He's going to be surprised at the day of judgment. See, if you're called of God, you don't care if you have two people or 200. You preach the same. You teach the same. And the numbers are no proof that you're spiritual. It may be proof that you're a compromiser. I remember years ago when I was teaching a certain church, People could go to four or five teachers, and it start off about 40 or 50, and after a couple of weeks, two or three weeks, I'd get down to 15 every time. See, because you weed out the liberal, you weed out the worldly and the hypocrite, because I'm just going to teach the gospel. They go to the other teachers because they want so hard, I heard. See, they make excuses. But if you preach and teach the true gospel, you're not always going to be liked. So numbers is no proof. Sardis had great numbers that said, from its history, you have a name that you're alive. These mega churches are no proof that any of them are Christians. And most of the people in their churches are not Christians. They're deceived. You go in and sit in these churches, and I've had people do it, true Christians, and they never preach or anything offensive. That's why some of our ministers were so well-known in the world 
California has a whole crop of them, and everybody likes them, and they have multitudes, and they don't like to offend people. You don't get money that way. You don't get numbers that way, see? So if you're truly a minister of the Lord, you will suffer. And you need boldness at times to give witness because you realize this person might retaliate if he does not like the message that you give him, okay? Paul went to the synagogues for two or three weeks, wherever he went. And in most cases, they threw him out. They didn't invite him back. And he always got a few that came to the Lord. And usually they were persecuted. So they didn't have to join the Christians. Pagan. I mean, the ones that once were pagan and Gentiles. See, that's God's wisdom. So when these people got saved, they were saved, but they didn't know much about the law. They didn't know about the old time prophets and the symbolism. And so the Jew could explain it to them. So you see God's wisdom. If the empire had seven, eight percent, several million throughout the whole empire. The empire stretched from Spain, England, all the way to the Mideast and the northern parts of Africa and the southern part of Europe. There were Jews everywhere. So if you got a Jew saved, he was trained in the law. He understood the law. So you can see God's wisdom in helping these people. Because within Paul's life, and after he's killed and destruction of Jerusalem, there could be a lot more Christian Gentiles than Jewish Christians. And you don't see no special ministry given to the Jews after the destruction of, of the system. See, God, for 40 years, he still witnessed to them and had witness given. Even the apostles would not leave Jerusalem until the destruction of the temple. See, and then the Jews outside of Jerusalem, throughout the empire, Paul and others began to give them the gospel. God wanted them. Some of them were true Jews. They hadn't been corrupted. But once they heard the gospel, they had to receive it. If they did not, their Judaism counted for nothing, and they were not righteous before the God. See, God goes according to light and what a person has. So some people are, were good Jews. But if they did not accept true Christianity, their Judaism, righteousness became as filthy rags. It wasn't accepted anymore. So that's why it was important to give these people the truth. They're more privileges in knowing deeper truth, okay? God gives peace. And what is peace? It's the absence of fear to those who suffer for his name's sake. So he told them not to fear, that you will be punished, some of you, and you will be martyred, some of you, for Christ. But we've known through history that he always gives the ability to suffer. See, the word of God says through Paul, he will not allow you to be tested above your able, but God will make a way of escape. So either he will lessen the pain or he will shorten the time and then allow them to kill you. You find the Christian could endure. This is called grace. The true Christian is given grace to go through whatever God requires. Okay? He does not forsake his own, and he honors those whose lives have to be forfeited. And he wants at times there to be 
a martyrdom, a witness in the communities. Usually when they were persecuted, the true Christian became stronger. The phonies and the false Christians fell away. For the first several years, when Jesus had told the apostles, go into all the world and preach the gospel to everyone. Well, they didn't move for six or eight years until persecution started. Then many of them started to go into Syria and Ethiopia, and they preached the gospel, and people got saved. See, that may have been God saying, well, you didn't obey me. Or you should have sent some of them out. Some were meant to stay. People have ministries. Some is local. Some is nationwide or county-wise. The Lord determines. To be a valid lampstand, you have to be in one place. So most Christians, their ministry is in a locality. Only the evangelists and people moving for other reasons, and even they have to get God's permission for job comes up or opportunity, they have to be sure the Lord's in it. It may not be for their good to move. Or the Lord may say, well, yes, I'm going to have this person move and be a better witness, and I'm going to spread the salt. See, that's God's business, what he does with his own. We are pilgrims in this world. The pilgrim often moved around. So the Christian, simply wherever he goes in the world, it's the world of the enemy. His kingdom, wherever he goes, he's of the kingdom of God. Okay, The pilgrim doesn't mean he has to move around everywhere. It means he's foreign. He's an ambassador to the area that it's not his home. That's basically what it meant. Okay. Remember when the apostles at first, when they preached Christ, they were called before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, and they were told you are not to preach in this name of Jesus. And they were beaten, and they rejoiced that they could suffer for the Lord, and they went out and spoke of Jesus anyway, see? And they got more converts. So it didn't work well. Finally, for a while, the Jewish leaders thought they could just leave them alone and they would fade out. They tried to persecute them, but it didn't work too well. Uh, when they persecuted Stephen and Paul was out there persecuting the Christians, it didn't do what they intended it to do. And the ones that had to flee, the Christian can flee persecution. Sometimes it's God's intention. It says if you're persecuted in one city, flee to another. Sometimes you can't flee, so you bear the persecution where you're at. Sometimes God wants the ones fleeing to bring the gospel to areas that have not. So if they had gone into all the world and preached the gospel, if they were slow about it, the Lord knows how to answer that. He'll just spread the salt out. That's his right to do this. It'd be better if they were led of the Lord. They were beaten and rejoiced at preaching Jesus, and it didn't stop them. They went back. A Christian, especially one who claims to be filled with the Spirit or claims ministry, claims to be mature, cannot be a coward and fearful, but I'm afraid most of them are. Fear Proverbs says, is the snare to man. There's a lot of people in hell because they fear what people might. I know my relatives and other people, they told me privately, well, they couldn't serve the Lord because they couldn't have anybody else talking about them. See, they fear persecution. They don't fear it 
Now I believe some of them that are waiting for hell or they're in hell, they realize how stupid it was. And Jesus said, what do you, what do you fear a man for? The most he can do is kill you and see if you're a Christian, you know it has to come through God's hand. He said, fear him, God, the Father. He said, after the body's destroyed, he destroys it, if he judges you, he's able to cast you into hell. He said, that's who you should fear. But then he immediately says to the disciples, but it's God's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, fear not. But he was saying, if you want to fear, fear God first. Don't let man interfere with your serving of the Lord. Most people and most ministers in these churches, they fear people. They're not going to make it into the kingdom. Most of them are not true Christians. They want to be liked. They want to be honored. They want to make money. See? And you cannot do that by giving the truth to people in this world. See, the world wants to prosper. The world wants to be rich and famous. Everybody wants to get ahead. That's the worldly way. It's opposite what John says. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. If you don't understand, there's no competition. There's no trying to get ahead of people in the Christian world. See, I've heard that many. That's why Paul told the Corinthians, you have favorite Bible teachers, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. He said, what if it's Peter or me? Were we crucified for you? He was saying it's the same message. And you need to get past personalities. You need to get past what you like. Paul was rude in speech. He was good to listen to, basically. Apollos was a great orientator. (laughs) He could speak real well. (laughs) Uh, But the person that's spiritual begins to recognize it don't matter who the vessel is. It's the treasure that's in the vessel. A person will never be spiritual that is a respecter of persons or that favors a person's personality. Oh, I see it. I see it years ago. They go into the church and they look for the prettiest woman and we want to have a conversation with because you're a lustful, low-life person. See? The true Christian guards his mind. He can be affectionate and kind to everyone, but he does not allow this to interfere with his spirituality. So, see, I've seen it happen many times. They come into the church and if they've got money... They gravitate toward people who got money and they don't want to have enough to do with money. It's because they don't understand Christianity and that Christianity's false. Paul's told the rich or the, those who thought they were mighty, he said, condescend to the lowly. So that means you don't be a respecter of persons. If you are, you may get in a sickness that leads to death as the Corinthians did if you are a true Christian. Okay. And so we need boldness to suffer. Okay, and continue to do the will of God. So Christians cannot be cowards and they cannot be fearful. Now, we're talking about mature Christians. God gives allowance for babes and novices and newcomers. He doesn't put everything on them at once. But as they grow to maturity, which you expect of all Christians, even the Hebrew writer said, "You you ought to be teachers. Well, the only ones that were teaching were mature Christians. As far as God was concerned, it was to be a mature Christian. James, the apostle, says, not many of you be teachers. Well, not many of you are mature enough to teach truth. 
or if you go public, you may suffer more. Okay. We'll go a step further to the book of Revelations toward the end. Revelation 21. Listen to it. He's talking to the seven churches back that we're in. At this time, he's not talking to them. But to everyone, he told them, as I said, you have to overcome. And what rewards you get? Well, in here, the verse says, he who overcomes, that's a Christian, will inherit all things, or these things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. In other words, if you're not faithful, and if you don't overcome the Christian life, and endure to the end, you will not be the Lord's. He won't consider you. We see by the parables what he does to wicked servants. We see with the prodigal son that when he left the house, the father said he was dead to me. He was no longer my son. Isn't that interesting? And then when he received him back, he said, this my son that was dead is alive again. So we need to understand God's attitude. Number eight. The first one named, he says, but the cowardly, and it means fearful, the unbelieving, sinning, the abominable, the murderer, the sexual and more, he names sins, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake, which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So we have an opportunity, don't we? We either overcome, Oh, we know what's waiting for that person. It names the cowardly or the fearful as the first on the list. This is something. There are many people, like I say, they fear that people will talk against them and mock them. It's not so much they fear them being persecuted or someone beating them. They don't want to be talked about. Oh, I know my relatives and other people, I believe they're either in hell or they're waiting for it for the final resurrection, because they're going to be punished. But almost in every case, I could tell they were afraid that people would make fun of them. See, they want understanding that God gives grace to the Christian. And the true Christian begins to find a joy and suffering for the Lord. And he was willing to take a stand. He realizes that the world is going to end up in a lake of fire. That's why Jesus said, why do you fear man? The people that you fear that are going to talk about you, they're going to end up, most of them are going to end up in hell. Their opinion doesn't count anymore. See, so you need to wise up. This is what it implies we should wise up. Okay, in verse 11, he who has an ear, he says to most churches, if you can hear what I'm saying, then you better listen. That's what it means. It's a warning, sort of given in the time and the language of the people. They spoke a little differently. So he was simply saying, if you have an ear, then you better listen. Take these things seriously. Here's what the Spirit, and it was him speaking, says to the churches. So he's saying, the Holy Spirit's saying, he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. But the message from the Father and the Son, too. But see, this was a prophecy. The whole book was delivered from the Father to the Son, to an angel, to John, and then to the people. That's how it was given. 
Okay? So he's saying, listen, and if you overcome. So when we go back to the seven churches, every one of them is promised something good if they endure to the end. Now he's saying, if they don't overcome, they're promised the lake of fire. They're promised fire and brimstone. See, that's what they're promised. Because they're wicked and they're sinners. And that's the purpose of the son was to save the sinner, is to come to them and redeem mankind. And even though he knows, not because of just humanity, Jesus said men love darkness rather than light. Men of the world. And they will not come to the light lest they be reproved. But those who want to live right, he didn't even say they were Christians, a good Jew, a good Gentile that wanted to live right, he said he would come to the light when he's given it to test what he's living to see whether it pleases God, pleases God himself. And God accepted them. He accepted the people of the Old Testament. He accepted the Gentiles, righteous Gentiles, until the gospel was given to him. Cornelius was a righteous man. He was not born again. He wasn't called a dirty sinner. Actually, the angel said, because of your good works, I've got a message for you. It implies that because he was good to people and good to poor Jews, that the Lord says, I'm going to give you the message clearer. And you're going to be the first Gentile. And Peter was sent to him. Isn't that interesting? He was called a righteous man. Now, if he rejected Peter's message, he would not have been righteous anymore. But he and 12 people in his household were saved and were filled with the Spirit. That was God's blessing. Because he was a good-natured person. You always look at the Scripture, and it's contrary to what they teach. Every prophet, if you go back and study, none of them was a filthy sinner. None of them was an adulterer, a liar, a thief. They were trying to live right when they were called. Isn't this interesting? See, today, the more wicked you are, the greater God's grace. But the scripture doesn't say that. It says if you want to be righteous, if you want to know the truth, it doesn't matter if you're lost. He says you'll know the truth. See, so a person is seeking the truth. At whatever level is that, God's promised to give him something. He might graduate into knowledge, and he may not become a Christian, but God's working with him. And some of them are already, they're saved in the knowledge that they have, like I say. But if they're given the true gospel, the true gospel, under the anointing and convicted, then they're responsible. They can't go back. And see, so the Hebrews, some of them wanted to go back to the law. It was an easier life, they thought, because they were under great persecution. And they would be warned, you have nothing to go back to. Not only will you trample the blood of Christ and despise the spirit of grace, you will come into God's great judgment. That's what he told them. And furthermore, true Judaism doesn't exist anymore. It's been abolished. God doesn't honor that system. So, and he's reminding them of, of those things. Okay. So he's saying, listen to what you are hearing and avoid the lake of fire. That's the final end that says of hell and death. Those faithful or loyal to God will not be hurt or tormented by the flames for wrath. 
See, Paul warned people that if you don't turn to the Lord, you're going to come under, and you're already under. See, this is contrary to many of the false gospel speech. Oh, God loves everybody, and he just loves them so much. And the scripture says they're under the wrath of God. Love simply for the wicked means that God has goodwill to them, and he wants them to repent. But while they're in their sin, they abide in the wrath of God, his anger and displeasure of their sin. And one day, he's going to call them an account for it. He is not going to overlook it in his life. Okay, let's go back and see what Paul says. And remember, Peter said Paul's writings of Scripture. What does he say? First Thessalonians. Go to chapter 1, verse 9. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you. He says, the witnesses, the letters they sent. And how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, that's the great hope, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath that is going to come. And who is going to exercise this wrath? Jesus is. It's the wrath of the Lamb. He's going to exercise God's judgment. All judgment's committed to him. See, he's the glorified son now. His glory's been given back. He's the creator. So this says that when a person's given the gospel and they won't turn to the Lord, that God's holding their sins against them. Also in early Romans, it says it's your stubbornness and willfulness that when God gives the gospel that you don't receive it. He says, don't you know you're storing up judgment for the day of wrath? See, he's telling us that God is just and every idle word and sin that the wicked person does, he's going to give an account for. So if he's given the gospel and he lives years and doesn't receive the gospel, there's more he's going to be punished for. He's going to be held accountable for more. And the grace that was extended to him, he will be answered for that. In the Old Testament, at times, Israel sinned so against the Lord that he sent judgment, and the people wanted to repent real quickly because they feared the judgment. And the Lord said to him through the prophet, not until I've rewarded you double for your sins. And then I will take you up. See, he held them accountable because they rejected the prophets and the message and he didn't let them get away with it. He says, no, I'm going to punish you severely and then I'm going to take you back. So the wrath of God is on the wicked. It's always on the wicked. See, it's a misunderstanding. Oh, Jesus loves you and he's begging you to come to heaven and all that. That's a false gospel. Like I said, the love, for God so loved the world, it is a good will, a good intention. He has no personal spite toward them, and he wants people to repent. That's the love of God toward the wicked. But it says his wrath abides on them, both of them. It means he's seeing what they've done and what they're doing, and he's keeping records. And one day they're going to, because God is a just and holy God, they're going to be called an account. He's not going to overlook it if they don't come to Jesus, if they don't receive 
And he also said in Thessalonians, because they love not the truth, toward the end, God's going to send a great delusion. See, they rejected the truth and God's grace extended to them when they had it or when it was available. And he said, so I will send them a strong. He sends them demons to lie to them and take the truth that was sown. Well, there's a parable that says even uh, what they have will be taken from them. When God sows the seed, that certain ground, they reject it and it implies the devil comes or the demonic force as birds and they eat up the seed. It means he takes it from them. So Jesus said he'll just send the devil to do this to those who resist the spirit, to those who mock his dealings, to those who won't deal with his grace properly. And Hebrews warns us, see, so nobody gets away with the wrath of God unless they come through Jesus. Even Paul expected this. He said, woe to me if I preach not the gospel. Well, that word means a curse on me. See, he was given a responsibility like the prophets, and he had no choice. You either obey the Lord or you don't. And Paul said something interesting. I will do anything, he said, to attain to the resurrection of the just. Well, it doesn't sound like he believed the once saved, always saved, did it? See, when he preached, as James said, we teachers receive a stricter judgment. Paul said to the Jews, if you're going to tell the Gentiles how to live, you better be sure that you're living right. He called them hypocrites and told them what was going to happen to them. So Paul preached a pure gospel to the Gentiles. He was an apostle to the Gentiles. And he knew the great accountability if he failed to do his job. See, that's the unprofitable servant. He teaches us in the parable that some servants served the Lord, but when he went on vacation, they decided to take advantage of the other servants and abuse them. And then the father says, I will come back when he doesn't expect me. See, he sees what's going on. The guy becomes wicked. And he thinks he's getting away with it. And he says, I will come back at a time he doesn't expect, and I will cut him asunder. I'll destroy him. And I will give him his portion with the hypocrites. What is the portion of the hypocrites? The greater damnation. He was talking to his own. He was talking to his servants that were loyal, but they didn't stay loyal like the five foolish virgins it didn't. Moving on, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, I am the one who has the sharp-edged sword, and I have this to say to you, okay? I am the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. He is the one who judges. That's what it means. Now, in Revelations one sixteen. We had already been there. Well, actually, three times he will say it all, at least three. He may say it more. It reveals Jesus having a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. That means judgment. He's coming to cut, to convict, to destroy. See, that's the way he's saying it. He's coming two-edged sword. Some people believe it means I've come here either to judge or to correct. If you don't receive my correction and chastisement, then I will cut you off. See, that 
speaks the truth to one degree that at the father's vineyard, he sees a branch is not bearing fruit. He says, well, cut it off. But the one who represents Jesus comes and says, well, give me a, a little bit of time to fertilize it, water it. And then if it don't bear fruit, you can cut it off. So he was showing the mercy, the extension of grace. He deserved to be cut off right then. But he said, okay, I'll give you time. And maybe he will repent. Maybe he will bear fruit. And if he doesn't, I'll deal with it. So in Revelation 1.16, he said he had the seven stars in his hand, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. From his mouth, the sword comes to judge and to chastise. And book of Revelations, outside of the churches, it's going to be the judge. But now he's speaking to the churches, so he's going to give them warning, he's going to chastise, and he wants them to repent of some of the things that are going on. So he's saying, I have the sword in my mouth, and if you don't listen to this correction, he implies, I'll become your enemy. I will cut you off. I will make war. One of the churches said he will make war with them if they don't listen to him. That means they are his enemies. Okay? Scripture, everybody loves, everybody knows. Hebrews chapter 4, 12. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Notice he mentions the two-edge. Piercing even to the dividing of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the spirit, or the heart, which means the human spirit, okay? So we see then that Jesus is the Word of God, and he presents the Word of God. He's called the Word of God. It's written on him. He is very God himself, as we saw in the Gospel of John, okay? And so we see that he's warning them uh, what he wants to do, okay, if they don't respond properly. It seems like Jesus meant business. You cannot read the message of seven churches and see the lobby-dobby Jesus Santa Claus that everybody talks about, the God that loves and forgives everything. You don't see that. You see a warning, and you see what's going to happen to each person in the church that doesn't repent if he sinned. He's not going to put up with it. And he's not going to put up with Christians today who think they're once saved, always saved, that think they have a license to sin. They're going to be speechless at the day of judgment. They're going to gnash their teeth and weep for eternity because they're going to see how stupid they were. Okay, that's what's going to happen to them. Well, let's go ahead and stop at this point, and we'll continue because we have to spend more time in these scriptures. Lord, give us wisdom. Give us understanding of your word. Give us practical application. In Jesus' name, amen.